This past Sunday was the anniversary of a famous sermon. Now, not many sermons are that noticeable that you know when their anniversary is. But this sermon was preached almost 280 years ago by a young preacher named Jonathan Edwards. He was invited to preach in the town over from where he was a pastor to a small town called Enfield in the then British colony of Massachusetts in North America. When he had preached that sermon at his own church, there had not been much effect or response among the people, but like most preachers, when he was asked to preach in another church, he took what he had prepared sort of most recently and went there to preach it. And when he preached it at that church in Enfield, he was barely able to finish because people kept interrupting often shouting out, what must we do to be saved? Because of the attention, the the commotion that it caused at that church, the sermon was printed back in the larger city of Boston and then over in London as well. What's called the First Great Awakening in America or the Evangelical Revival in the United Kingdom had already been going on for several years and has sort of slowed down the sort of sheer volume of people coming to faith. Uh, in those two places, and this sermon had spiritual tidal waves as it spread across the Atlantic. People reading this were convicted and turned and trusted in the Lord. You may have heard of this sermon. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Not maybe what you would expect from a sermon that would spark revival and push people to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did it affect people? Because in that sermon, Edwards walked through the Bible and reflected on the biblical teaching of God's wrath and God's anger towards sin. And it was a reality that not many people were being taught. But as he walked through the Bible to show the seriousness of this, people saw the seriousness of their own situation and thus the richness of God's mercy to them in Christ. Friends, God's anger is a fearsome thing. But it is part of his character that the Bible teaches us, is how he's revealed himself to us. And if we want to know how to live faithfully and respond rightly to the Lord, we also must consider his anger towards sin. That's what Psalm 79, our text for this afternoon, reflects on and aims to teach us. How do we live in light of the reality that the God of the universe is angry when he sees sin? So Psalm 79, I encourage you to to open there. It will be helpful to you throughout the sermon. There's a table of contents at the beginning of any Bible. Or if you're feeling more adventurous, you can just sort of open in the middle and you'll probably be around the Psalms. Psalm 79 is what we're looking at. A Psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, 
and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Please join me in prayer. Father, you tell us that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword to divide and discern the matters of the heart and spirit. Lord, the edges of this text are sharp indeed. Even coming to preach it, Lord, I feel my smallness. I am not wise or holy enough to rightly teach this text as powerfully as it deserves. But Lord, please use, use my words, use my teaching, use your word to convict us, to help us see uh, the seriousness of your anger and the beauty of the hope of your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The context of this psalm is, as you can tell, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. In 585 BC, the Babylonian Empire swept into the southern kingdom of Israel, then called Judah, and destroyed it for the last time. The siege was so terrible around Jerusalem that people turned to cannibalism inside because food was running out. They, at the end, were so desperate they made a hole in the wall for the king to escape with, escape through. But the plan failed, and the king was captured and taken to Babylon. Thousands were killed, and the survivors, the small remnant of Israel, God's people, were taken prisoner and taken into a land that wasn't their own land. If you remember, uh, two weeks ago when I preached Psalm 78, that psalm was also called a Psalm of Asaph, as this one says at the beginning. and Asaph was a priest during King David's time. This song is also called a song of Asaph, but it is almost certainly not written during David's time uh, because it's describing the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened long after David. It seems that the descendants of Asaph continued to be in charge of musical worship. Uh, so in Ezra 2 and Ezra 3, even after the exile, the sons of Asaph are described as helping with the music. So it's likely that this was written by one of Asaph's descendants. Uh, and called a psalm of Asaph and put together with the other songs that were written by that family. Psalm 79 79 is placed directly after Psalm 78, uh, but it's talking about a very different time in Israel's history. It goes from David's enthronement, skipping over uh, 500, 600 years to the destruction of Jerusalem, as we saw there in verse 1. And it models for us how God's people should respond to the experience of God's discipline. 
But if you look at the end of Psalm 78, you can get kind of a clue why it was put right after Psalm 79. Even though they're talking about different times in history. The end of Psalm 78, verse 68 says, The Lord chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion. That's the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple was built on. Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary, or temple. Verse 71 says, He brought David to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. And then if you look back at verse 1 of Psalm 79, it says, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. The things that Psalm 78 presented as sort of the greatest pictures of God's faithfulness and provision for his people have been stripped away in this moment. If Psalm 78 was written to reflect, help us reflect on Israel's past, to understand God's character, Psalm 79 is written as the psalmist looks at his present situation and uses God's character to interpret how he should respond. It's as though, it, while Psalm 78 is written in the midst of celebration and reflecting on God's faithfulness, this song is written with the smoke of Jerusalem rising behind the psalmist, his hands in chains, leaving his homeland for the last time. And looking at his circumstances, again, his response is shaped by God's character, not by his circumstances, just by themselves. His character that he knows from God's past interactions with God's people. So Psalm 78 comes before this psalm because it recounts God's past interactions with his people. I counted roughly eight or nine places where Psalm 79 alludes to or refers to, to the language used in Psalm 78 telling the history of Israel. And I encourage you uh, in your own time to go through and see how many you can, you can find. So in this awful, hopeless situation, this song is written. And written not just for personal use, but for God's people to sing together. So what is the main idea of this song? What was it meant to teach God's people? Here's, here's the main idea for you. When facing the Lord's discipline, his people should confidently ask for his mercy and his vengeance. I'll say it again. When facing the Lord's discipline, his people should confidently ask for his mercy and for his vengeance. And four points that will help us walk through this text. First, fear the Lord's anger and listen to his discipline. Fear the Lord's anger and listen to his discipline. Second, cry out for mercy. Third, cry out for vengeance. And fourth, have no fear. So the first one, fear the Lord's anger and listen to his discipline. This is looking at verses 1 through 4 at the beginning. The psalm starts simply by describing what has happened. The nations have come into God's inheritance. This is, this is language that was used to describe Israel even from Exodus 19 when the Lord gave them the Ten Commandments, the covenant with them. He said, you will be my treasured possession in all the earth. And now, other nations have come into the midst of his beloved people, but not for good reasons. They haven't come to worship the Lord like they did in Solomon's time. No, no, no. They've come to cause devastation. So verse 1, they have defiled your holy temple. They've made it unclean. 
and they've laid Jerusalem in ruins. But it's not just that they've destroyed the city, they've also slaughtered God's servants, the Israelites. And not only slaughtered them, but simply left their bodies as food for birds and beasts. They have poured out the blood of God's faithful around Jerusalem. Poured it out like water, it says. And then when you get to the end of verse 3, it's as if he loses heart in his poetic imagery. And he just says, there was no one to bury them. And what is the result of all this? Verse 4. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. <clears throat> this could be a specific reference to the country of Edom that descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. <clears throat> they lived just to the east of Israel. And the prophet Obadiah tells us that on the day when Jerusalem fell, the Edomites watched and gloated over the demise of their cousins. But more likely, while it may be specifically about the Edomites, I think it's also generally true for the nations that were around Israel. I mean, imagine it, after all. Israel was a tiny country that said, we are the only ones who worship the only real God. All of your gods are not real gods. Our God is the only God. And he has chosen us, and only us, to be his treasured possession, set aside from all the rest of you people. So you can imagine how that would sound to those countries around them. And you can imagine how those same people might respond when they see that small nation utterly and completely humiliated. It's about time. They've got what they've been asking for. Whose who's God is so powerful now? Now, so far, this is simply just talked about what the nations have done to Israel. So... Why, why am I justified in saying that th we should fear the Lord's anger in looking at these verses? And how could I possibly call this discipline? Discipline is a good thing. Well, I can because God calls it that. I mean, we see in verse 5, the psalmist recognizes that. But actually, long before this ever happened, the Lord called this his coming discipline. So in Leviticus 26, when the Lord was giving and explaining the law to Israel to teach them how to live so that he could live in their midst, he said, but if you do not listen to me and do all of these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and your soul abhors my rules, if you break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will set my face against you and you'll be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power. Then, if you walk contrary and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold. I will bring a sword upon you, and I, and I shall execute vengeance for the covenant. But if in spite of all this you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. I will lay your cities waste and make your sanctuaries desolate. I will scatter you among the nations. 
Sound familiar? This tragedy that has happened to God's people is not just, they're not the innocent victims in this. This has happened because God has been working to bring them back to repentance, to stop sinning against him and the promises that they made to him as his people. He's been warning them and disciplining them over and over and over again, and they have persisted in not listening. And this is the final act of God's discipline. In refusing to listen to the Lord, they, they've forced his hand, as it were, to bring the worst possible punishment upon them. If they had listened earlier, then this wouldn't have happened. You heard it all through that, didn't you? If you don't listen to this, then I will do this. If they had listened, it wouldn't have happened. This terrible punishment is the final step in the Lord disciplining his people Israel to teach them that what is best for them is to follow the Lord, not to follow after other gods or the desires of their own heart. And this punishment serves even now at the point of this psalm as a warning to what's left of the nation, even as they're being taken into, into exile, warning them that even now they still should repent and follow the Lord. It's a striking picture of how seriously the Lord hates sin. Not only has he allowed this to happen, brought this about on his treasured people, but consider the effects of this. In verse 12, the psalmist says that these taunts, these, this mockery that's being thrown against the people of God are taunts against God himself. In other words, God hates the sin of his people so much that he even has allowed his own name to be dragged through the mud for the sake of disciplining them and warning them away from their sin. That is how seriously the Lord treats sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a warning here for us, is there not? The author of Hebrews warns us similarly against persisting in sin. He says in Hebrews 10, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses, Israel's covenant, dies without mercy. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The Israelites were rejecting a covenant, a promise that they had made to the Lord to be his people, to follow after him and receive his mercy and grace. But that covenant had only been sealed with the blood of ox and goats. Brothers and sisters, our covenant with the Lord is sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ himself. Do not persist in sinning. Do not be deliberate in refusing to listen to the Lord's warning. We can be tempted to think that we'd be safe from this kind of judgment because Jesus paid for our sins and God is merciful and he doesn't require us to be perfect after all. He gives us grace. Those things are all true. Praise the Lord, those things are all true. 
But it is also true that the Lord's mercy should never be used as a cover for sin, as an excuse to go on sinning. If you claim the name of Jesus and say that you've trusted in his death to pay for your sins, and you insist on deliberately chasing after sin, you won't face a judgment like these Israelites faced. You will face something far, far worse. So be warned. Do not deliberately chase after your sin. Brothers and sisters, this is a hard teaching, is it not? It's not a fun or enjoyable thing to reflect on. But it is true. And it's necessary for us to hear so that we recognize how important it is that we realize the danger of deliberately sinning when the Lord has warned us not to. It's why it's so important to keep the promise that we make to one another in our church covenant to exercise affectionate care and to faithfully warn, rebuke, and admonish one another when necessary. Look out for each other. Because you can see from this example of Israel's life just how serious sin against the Lord is. Look out for one another because we can see from this how easy it is to ignore the Lord's warnings. Not because they are subtle, but because our flesh loves sin and loves to find reason to chase after sin. I also just want to point out to you that the sins that Jerusalem was destroyed for were not just the sins for, of one or two people. It was the sins of the nation. There was corporate sin that was going on. So here is a warning for us as a church. If you let your fellow church members continue to chase after sin, that's not only uncaring for them, that's also uncaring for your own soul. How we as a body fall after, after the Lord is something the Lord takes seriously. So we should be on guard and lovingly help one another to follow the Lord. The discipline of the Lord, even in this passage, looks an awful lot like his judgment. But as, as Pastor John Calvin said, the difference between his discipline and his judgment lies in this issue. God converts that which in itself is a sign of his wrath into the means of salvation for his children. God converts that which is in itself a sign of his wrath into the means of salvation for his children. Now, let me be clear. The Lord doesn't delight in our suffering. But like a loving parent, he, like a loving parent disciplines their children to teach them that disobedience has consequences and disobedience is dangerous, the Lord also uses hardship for the sake of discipline on his children. Usually, the Lord is teaching you something like this. Trust the Lord. Don't trust in yourself. Fight your sin. Do not love it or make peace with it. The Lord's discipline in this life can often feel painful, but it's a mercy. It's helping us, learning to avoid our sin before it's too late. You may be suffering now, not because of some particular sin that you've done. You may be suffering also because of the sin of other people, 
or envy suffering because you're walking in the footsteps of Christ and suffering for his name's sake. But even when you're suffering for a good reason, don't you find it true that your sin bubbles to the surface? The Lord is helping you find that and fight it. Another pastor said, it is well when men are punished for their sins in time and not eternity so that we may properly confess and bewail and forsake and obtain pardon for those sins. Fear the Lord's anger and listen to his discipline. Secondly, the psalmist teaches us to cry out for the Lord's mercy. You can see this in verse 5, verses 8 and 9, and verses 11. So after describing the situation, the psalmist calls out to God. What else could he do? He makes two requests over and over, and the first of those is a request for mercy. So verse 5, How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Verses 8 and 9, Do not remember against us our former iniquities or sins. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for your name for the for our sins, excuse me, for your name's sake. In verse eleven, let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Notice in all of these calls for the Lord's help, for his forgiveness, for his deliverance. There is no defense. You you may not see anywhere in here the psalmist specifically saying, Lord, we have sinned and we repent of our sins. But it is very clear that he acknowledges they have sinned. He knows that the Lord is jealous and angry and he has a good reason for it. He knows that they have many sins or iniquities that the Lord could remember and hold against them. So he asks the Lord not to remember those sins. He knows that they are doomed to die. What they deserve, even though they've survived the destruction of Jerusalem, they still deserve death. So he simply asks God to forgive them, to save them. He asks for God to end his anger. He asks for God to bring his compassion to meet them speedily. He asks God to atone, to pay for the sins of the people, even though that sin was against him. And he asks God to preserve them. Friend, if you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus, this is what it takes to become a Christian. You need to ask the Lord for mercy. You need to recognize that you have sinned and that you have no excuse or defense for your sin against the Lord. You need to recognize that the only hope that you have is God's compassion and mercy. When you recognize that and call for it, he loves to give it. Even though you deserve to pay for what you have done, you can't pay The cost is too high. But praise the Lord, he is merciful. And he is able to pay what you cannot. Jesus' death on the cross was just simply that. His death to atone, to pay for sins. 
It was answering this psalmist's prayer of what he recognized he and his fellow countrymen needed to take Jesus took the death that sinners, you and me, deserve. So that if we trust in him, instead of being doomed to die, we are inheritors of eternal life. God's anger is terrible. But praise the Lord, if we trust in Jesus, we never have to taste it. For those who trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for forgiveness of sins, we never have to experience his anger against our sin. Christian, I wonder, do these examples of repentance look like your repentance? What I mean by that is, when you repent, are you clear that you have no excuse? Or does your repentance, your confession of sin, sound something more like this? Lord, I confess that I've been angry, but she's so irritating. Father, I confess that I have lusted over what I should not, but I'm so lonely. Father, I know that you've said in your word that this is something that Christians shouldn't do. But look at my situation, it's so unique. Christians, we have no excuse in ourselves before a holy God either. So stop making excuses. Repent. Confess your sin. And rest on the Lord and what he's done. That's a great sign of maturity in a Christian when, when they stop feeling the need to justify the reasons why they, why they slipped or failed up. Because the more you grow as a Christian, the more aware you are of sin. So if someone confronts you with sin and saying, maybe, brother, maybe you need to turn from this. Oh, you, you know that even if what they're saying isn't true, there's much worse things that they're not aware of. We're quick to repent and confess our sins and throw ourselves on God's mercy because that's the only hope that we have. So don't look for other smaller excuses to help cover things up. Also notice that the reasons the psalmist gives, the grounds for why he makes these requests to the Lord. There's basically two. The first one is that we are brought very low. Basically, we can't help ourselves. Therefore, you need to help us. And friends, the Lord loves to help people like that. He loves to help those who are lowly and weak and pitiful in this world. If you feel like that, if you feel undeserving, you're exactly the kind of person the Lord loves to show mercy towards. But notice the other reason that he gives over and over, for your name's sake. Lord, do this for us for your name's sake. For the sake of God's reputation. For the sake of his glory. It seems familiar to me to Exodus 32. I don't know if you remember when the Israelites built a golden calf and they worshipped it. The Lord said to Moses, the people that you have with you are sinning and I'm going to wipe them out and start again with you, Moses. And what does Moses do? He intercedes for the people and he says, essentially, what will the nation say? 
they'll think that you only brought them out of Egypt to kill them in the wilderness. And because of that, the Lord turns from destroying Israel at that time for the sake of his name, for his glory. Because God cares that God is glorified on the earth, he will keep the promises that he has made. He's bound himself with his word to keep his word so that he would be shown good to his word to you. So call for his mercy. Cast yourself on it. And praise the Lord. He listens when we call. But the psalmist doesn't only ask for mercy. He also asks for vengeance or revenge on the nations who've done this to Israel. You can see that in verses 6 through 7, 10, 13. Uh, excuse me, 12, not 13. This is our third point. Cry out for vengeance. So he doesn't just first of all ask for mercy and then he asks for vengeance afterwards. No, he flips back and forth between the two. One commentary I read say, says about this section from 5 to 12, he says, the movement from one type of request to another is disorienting. And no kidding. It's, it's strange to hear at one moment out of his mouth, Lord, forget our sins. Don't pour your anger on us. Pour your anger on them. Why are they linked in the psalmist's minds? Because they're both tied to God's reputation. Look there at the reasons that he gives for why they, he should, uh, the Lord should carry out vengeance on the nations. Verse 6, because the nations do not know you. They do not call upon your name. Verse 10, why should they say, where is their God? Or verse 12, the taunts with which they taunted you, O Lord. The way that the nations have treated God's inheritance, it is Israel, or Jacob is another name for Israel. The way that the nations have treated Israel is the way that they have treated God himself. It's like when Jesus appeared to Saul the Pharisee and said, Saul, Saul, who's who is chasing after the church, trying to kill Christians. Saul, why are you persecuting me? But all that said, this, this request for, for vengeance, for revenge, feels, it feels unnatural, doesn't it? I mean, it almost feels unchristian to ask for this sort of thing. I mean, after all, we're, we're taught to pray for the nations to pray for their good, to pray that they would come to the Lord and trust in him. Actually, after all, look around this room. We are the nations. We are the non-Jewish Gentile people that the Lord has shown mercy to. So it, it, it is right that it feels strange to see this example of prayer and to say that we as Christians should pray this. It's easy to feel like maybe this is just the Old Testament judge. Uh, Old Testament God who's judgmental and mean because Jesus hasn't turned up yet. But th that's not true. Revelation 6, uh, 12 through 17 is one picture of the coming judgment of God coming from the Lamb that was slain. The Lamb who sits on the throne of God is the one who pours out judgment so terrible that the kings and nations cry out, for mountains to fall on them, because that would be better. What's more, 
Actually, just before that, that point in Revelation, still in Revelation 6, the martyrs, those who've been killed for witnessing to the name of Jesus Christ and what he's done, are portrayed calling out to the Lord. And what do they say? Listen. The sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then John tells us, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, those who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This vision that John had sees Christians, our brothers and sisters, who died for the faith. This vision may actually be something about some of us in this room, if the Lord allows And what do they beg the Lord for? His vengeance. So how does this fit? How does this make sense that a God who loves to show mercy would also show vengeance? How does this fit in our own hearts with learning to pray that the Lord would show mercy to the nations? Why would we also pray for vengeance? Well, first notice what the psalmist is concerned about. The psalmist is not concerned about what's happened to him in particular. Remember, the reasons he gives for why the Lord should do this is because of how it's affected the Lord's reputation. We need to be careful to guard our hearts that we don't use prayers like this to justify, to cover over the desire to see our own names made good. We need to be careful not to use this as an excuse to hold on to resentments against how people have treated me. But we should be driven by a desire to see that done which is right, that serves the world and serves the Lord's name. So it's good for us to pray for criminals to be captured and punished. It's good for us to pray for justice when people do terrible things to other people. It's good for us to pray that those who hate Christians and want to harm Christians should be stopped. But we should pray these things not because they bother us personally, but because they tell lies about our Lord. When one person who's made in the image of God does terrible things to someone else who is also an image bearer, that is tragic not just on the human level. It declares to the heavenly powers something wrong and false about God and what he looks like. Next, notice that the psalmist isn't desiring to carry out the revenge himself. right? He knows what the Lord said to Moses in Deuteronomy 13. Vengeance is mine. Even when Paul encourages us in Romans to repay, not repay evil for evil, but repay evil for good, right afterwards he quotes the same passage. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Because vengeance is a too terrible of a thing for a human to hold on to in their hearts. You and I can't take it. It will destroy us. But God is the one who sees to vengeance. He's the one who will put right the wrongs in this world. 
he is faithful to avenge the wrongs that have been done and will be done. And because God is faithful to do that, you and I are freed up to be gracious and charitable, even to wicked people. Because we know the way that we treat them is, will not be the last word. So we want to walk like Jesus walked, suffering, not opening our mouths, even when wicked, unjustifiable things were done to him. We are the plaintiffs in the court case. We have no right to get up and sit down in the judge's seat. So be careful in your own heart. We ought to pray for the Lord to carry out justice and vengeance on things that have been done wrong in this world. But be careful that you don't use them as an excuse to let bitterness and anger and frustration grow within you. For that very reason, these prayers of vengeance are, are hard things to pray. Not just because they feel so harsh. They're also dangerous to pray if they're prayed in a wicked way. Judgment, though, is what we should pray for. Judgment is what all who defame God's name deserve, including you and I, Christian, for what we did before we trusted in the Lord. We defamed our Lord's name as well, and we deserve judgment. We deserve to pay with our life for what we have done. But the Lord honors us, even though we do not honor him, because that judgment has already been poured out completely. The judgment that you deserve, Christian, has already been given. It's been poured out on Jesus. Look back again in verses 2 through 4, the way that the judgment on God's people is described, the judgment that they earned. Because of their disobedience, their blood is shed surrounding Jerusalem, outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Their bodies are left to be eaten by birds, and they are mocked and derided. Brothers and sisters, does that not sound familiar to you? Hail, King of the Jews. Prophesy. Who struck you? Look, he who would save others cannot save himself. Our Lord was taunted and mocked as we deserve. And when the spear went into his side and his blood poured out outside of the walls of Jerusalem, he received what you and I deserve. He was treated this way even though he was the faithful remnant even though he was God himself, always faithful to his father. That's the way he was treated. His body was left, raised up in the air. The intention was to let birds disfigure the bodies of people who were crucified. So what would have happened to our Lord if not for the bravery of Joseph of Arimathea? He was treated in this way. He became sin and was treated as sin deserves, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Even Paul, who persecuted the church, 
could be counted a saint of the Lord. And why? Because Jesus was punished for persecuting Jesus. The judgment that we pray for to be poured out either will be poured out on the last day or it has already been poured out on Christ. God will keep his promises. He will judge all wrong. And praise the Lord, he has provided a way for wrong to be judged not by those of us who've done it, but by his perfect and innocent son on our behalf. So, pray for those who oppose God's word, that they would be saved. Pray that the judgment that they are building up for themselves would have been poured out on Christ and not on them. But also, pray for the Lord to keep his word, to judge wrongdoing. So, fear the Lord's anger. Cry out for mercy. Cry out for vengeance. And then lastly, have no fear. Verse 13. After begging the Lord for mercy and for vengeance, the psalmist takes what could seem kind of like an abrupt turn all of a sudden. He says, But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. While God will pay back sevenfold to the nations, the taunts that they have taunted him with, his people will praise him for generations. The statement seems amazingly confident, given the situation. Remember, he's leaving Jerusalem recently destroyed, going into exile and captivity. How on earth could he so confidently say, we will praise the Lord for coming generations, even though we're doomed to die? Because, just as the Lord keeps his promise to discipline his people, he also keeps his promise to restore his people. Back in Leviticus 26, the place where I read to you about the Lord saying that he would do this to discipline his people, after he says that, this is what he says in verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. Or Deuteronomy 30, a similar passage, says, when all these things, these judgments come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, the coming generations, and you obey his voice, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. Just as the Lord promised to judge his people for the sin that he knew that they would commit, he also promised to restore his people after the discipline, after he humbled them to the point where they realized and recognized their need to call on him. None of this has been a surprise to the Lord. And the psalmist knows that what God has promised, God will do, even though the situation around him looks hopeless. The psalmist knows that even though they are doomed to death, 
they will praise God from generation to generation because God has promised exactly that will happen. So, Christian, beloved, let me ask you, are you firm in God's promises like that? Prepare yourself now before whatever hardship comes, comes. Get your promises of his deliverance and his justice into your bloodstream. Get it so that when the time of trial comes, you can feel it in your bones. The Lord will keep his promises. No matter what the world around me tells me, the Lord will keep his promises. So though the Lord's anger is terrible and fearful, we, the Lord's people, those who've trusted in his Son, have nothing to fear. Because our God keeps his promises. He cares for his people, like the sheep of his pasture. He is a good shepherd. So when we are treated shamefully, we have nothing to fear. When your family members mock you for your faith, you have nothing to fear. When your coworkers make fun of you because of your morals, that you refuse to do certain things that they think you should to make more money, or they try and undercut you, have no fear. When you see nations opposing God's people, looking for ways to pressure God's people, to hurt them, to even kill them, have no fear. Because even if our circumstances around us look terrible and hopeless, the Lord will show mercy. The Lord will deliver his people. And on that great and final and terrible day, he will set all wrongs right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises. We thank you for the graciousness of giving us the warnings in that, of the importance of turning from our sin, and the graciousness of the hope that we have in that, that you will preserve your people, and that we will praise you from generation to generation. In Jesus' name, amen.